I'm with Craig Thompson, K9CT. Amsterdam Island, it's an IT uh, challenge in a nutshell. Well, you know, when you're trying to do things remotely, then you have to think of things that could happen. And one of the things that can happen is you've got all this log data and you do not want to lose it. So there's a chance of an error happening. You want to make sure that everything's backed up. So in our case, we have a backup on the computer, plus we have a backup on a hard drive, plus then there's another hard drive with another image of the same information so that if there is a a problem, we have a backup. We have backup laptops and we have backup uh, methods of recovery so that we don't lose that data. And we do ship it off via satellite and store it in another location too so that uh, when we do get back home, the QSL manager will have that data and uh, we will not have to have those individual laptops. Um, we'll have uh, off-site stored data. Now, how many laptops are we talking here? To just give us an idea of scale. Well, there's 10 laptops. And there's uh, two special hard drives called NAS. And then we have two, uh, we have a link between the two operating sites. And the idea is to synchronize that information. Um, there's some things that we're not going to do because it adds a uh, level of sophistication that we would actually maybe cause a problem if we did have a fault and that that would be log synchronization so we've decided not to do that um, but you know there there's an element of uh, concern that we would lose the link between the sites um, in which case then the hard drive that's there would be uh, the backup and then we can if we can get the link back going they will resynchronize so our backup by the way is just taking a memory stick and walking from laptop to laptop and storing the data that way. So we have a really, and we actually have a spare laptop at each site too, so that we can slap one in right away if, if something should happen. It's part of the network. So you are prepared for, uh, you know, all manner of calamity. Uh, you've been doing this for a little while. Uh, what kind of failures have you seen, um, you know, in the IT realm? You know, unexpected things that you go, I wish I'd known that, you know, 4,000 kilometers ago. Well, you know, you've got to make sure that you have to the latest software. I, I've seen issues where the operators were not familiar uh, with the software, so silly little mistakes um, cause, uh, for instance, the, the radio not to be linked to the, to the computer, and they're logging information that's not related to the band that they're on or the time is off or something, and then you find those errors later and then you have to fix them. Um, and that's very difficult to do. So it's better to catch those things. We, we make sure that the operators are all on the same page. The software is the same on every on every computer. That uh, We try to minimize all of the human errors as much as possible. But of course, it's the humans that usually create the issue. Um, but you never know. There's RFI. RFI can creep in. Um, we've had uh, USB ports. Uh, uh, quit because of RFI and you're and uh, you're wondering now what happened. Uh, so if an operator is not paying attention and uh, they have changed bands or changed modes and all of a sudden the logging software is not saying the same thing, they could have logged several contacts on the wrong band or frequency or something or not uh, or mode, and then uh, it's left later to be resolved uh, by tweaking the database. You know, with uh, some kind of a change that has to be done. Um, the other uh, sort of IT things, you know, the, the computers can fail, in which case now you've got a real problem because where did the log go? So it's better to get the, the logs off the computer on a regular basis so that if you do lose something, you've only lost part of it. Um, so we, you know, these are things that have happened as a result of something did really happen. 
Um, I, I try to do things minimally, um, you know, when we uh, on several of the expeditions, because then it, then it's just that one computer. If they're all networked, sometimes it could take down uh, maybe several things, and now you have another problem. So when I was talking about synchronization of logs, uh, if a computer fails and then you put in another computer, then it tries to synchronize all of the logs now on the new computer, and the other operators are trying to operate, and they, now their hard drives are uh, thrashing, trying to sync the data back off to the new computer. So there's issues that can occur uh, that can slow down the whole operation. You just try to think of these things ahead of time. Your logging isn't going real time. I mean, you're on a satellite link. Uh, you've got a, you know, bandwidth is a limited resource. Uh, you don't have access to, you know, being able to put megabytes and megabytes of data across that link. Uh, so how often does the data actually synchronize? Well, of course, that's going to be left to us doing that on a regular basis um, because we'll be um, using a BGAN and uh, someone will get that those ADIF files, which are like text files, and they will send them as an attachment to an email to uh, a person that we trust to then receive them and store that data. Uh, and then he will send that information to Clublog, which is a uh, a website that all hams seem to know about and that, that we use for uh, making sure that they know that they're in our log. Um, and it helps them uh, because then they, they're reassured that they're in the log and then they're not working us again and again, which would be a duplicate contact. But um, So we try to make sure that we do that on a very regular basis so that the ham world knows that We've got them in the log. Of course, ultimately, you want to work everybody that wants to contact us because uh, it's such a rather rare and it's also a difficult place to reach for most people in the world. It's very far away from a lot of the population centers in the world. So, you know, you want to get to the point where the guy's got five watts and a dipole or wire uh, that ultimately he can get in the log too. And, of course, if the big stations are still calling because there's this uncertainty that they're in the log, that guy doesn't have a chance. It's good to upload this information as soon as possible and to confirm to the bigger stations that they're in the log so that the small stations, the five watts and the wire off the balcony, has a chance to get in the log quicker. You've been doing IT uh, around this de-expedition. I'm guessing you've done it before? Well, yes. You know, I do a variety of different things. Um, I like the radio to computer interface, which we're not simulating today here, but um, I, I particularly enjoy that. And uh, um, this is just part of it. Um, we have others that uh, have been involved with the integration for actually special software was, was actually uh, written for this de-expedition. And I know it will be used by other de-expeditions after we're done um, that to help with the backups that we have talked about. And then also right now we're working on the uh, being able to customize the profile of the software for each operator as they sit down as an automated feature so that when you sit down as an operator, you, you type in your call that you're now the operator. It will automatically remember the settings that you last put in it. How long have you had your license? Well, I was first licensed uh, in 1967. I was a young boy, you know, 14 years old. So uh, that's back when... Uh, we were required to learn Morse code initially, so that was really the the hard part for me. Uh, I enjoyed the technical things anyhow and was reading electronics books at an, a young age, so that part was probably easier for me to get the beginning license. Um, but of course, learning the code to me at the time, you were forced to do it, so then 
um, everybody was on code, and that's what we did. Uh, nowadays, of course, in our country, uh, United States, uh, they don't require code. But what's interesting about that is uh, they soon find out that if they really want to work DX, they want to learn the Morse code. So now you have this incentive, and so it's kind of fun. And so I have a lot of hams, young hams or newer hams, uh, that that come and want to learn more about CW, and uh, use that to work DX. So I'm I'm kind of tickled. Uh, it's kind of come around so to speak. <laughs> I suppose it's a little bit different in a learning incentive. You know, if you have to learn something, then, yeah. you know, it's hard work. But if it's something you can do, you know, when you feel like it, that's a, that's a whole different driver. Right. And I think also we've learned a lot about learning CW. Um, in the last, you know, maybe several decades, they've learned that learning it at a higher speed is much better. Uh, you start learning it by words and uh, those sort of things and more conversational so i i think that a lot of people do it that way i know they also have uh, some aids that have been helped that help you know uh, uh digital decoding devices that you can interface with your receiver to actually like any other digital mode be able to decode as i always say cw was your original digital but the uh, you know it's kind of fun because a lot of people start that way they they use a crutch which would be the CW decoding device. And of course, they're hearing it at the same time. So ultimately, they soon learn and they're then just glancing up maybe every once in a while to confirm that, in fact, that's what they heard. So I, I've enjoyed seeing uh, several people that, uh, that have shown interest in Morse code become quite proficient at it simply this way, you know. Now, I've been um, an amateur for three years. The computing world since I was born, which is when you were first licensed, um, has dramatically changed. I don't know when computers and, and amateur radio started merging, but I'm guessing it was there from the very early days. How has that uh, kind of interface evolved over that time? I mean, today's interface versus, you know, the earlier um, exploits. Well, what a... What a question, because that, that is a monster. Um, it, it, we've, we're talking complete radical change to ham radio. And in fact, I would encourage any young person that has any interest at all in uh, computers uh, that they'll find uh, a, a lot of interesting aspects of ham radio for them. And of course, when uh, I would say back in the late 70s and early 80s in particular, uh, a lot of computers were out there just for the fun of it. You know, some people would build them or they could buy a computer and they could program them themselves. And there was a lot of experimentation with logging programs. That was probably one of the first applications. But in the 90s, uh, some of the radios started coming out with adapters that allowed uh, for computer interface to the radio, uh, in particular to track the frequency and the mode of operation. And now we've come to the point where we can completely integrate uh, any radio that's manufactured essentially today uh, with any almost any logging program uh, or control. And of course, with the internet and several other things now, we have ways to completely remote control a, a radio uh, uh, station, ham radio station, uh, using a computer anywhere or an iPad or any uh, device. Uh, so we've come really a huge spectrum of change. Uh, in my station at home, in fact, I've integrated uh, wireless controls to my towers for uh, antenna switching and uh, rotator controls, and everything's on my computer screen. I have very few controls in front of the operator. He just clicks a mouse or he uh, uses a rotary encoder to rotate something. Um, it's just a lot of fun to integrate because it also makes an operator quite efficient. A very quick uh, 
So I think anybody that's into digital uh, computing or anything like that would find it fascinating ways to integrate computer technology with our ham radio hobby. And of course, it's it's even evolving beyond, you know, a computer and a radio separation. With software-defined radio, you know, the hardware is almost a part of the computer integrated, and you know, the, the separation almost doesn't exist anymore. It's you know, it's one and the same device. Right. I have a. I just got in the last couple of months a Flex Radio 6700, and I have never really had such an exposure to an SDR in my life as this. And of course, this is a different platform in that the. Uh, all of the radio is just a black box, and the software then is any device that you have that can talk to it. So if you, you assign an IP address to that black box, any device that you have now can be the radio control. Uh, so you can be anywhere in the world and be able to operate my radio, uh, whether it's Morse code or CW, you know, or a phone or, or digital modes. Anywhere you are in the world, you could... You could uh, talk to that IP address and, and operate my radio station. So that's pretty cool stuff. <laughs> Here's a self-reference. Um, across your RB again, is there enough bandwidth to operate your own radio to your own Amsterdam Island contact? Uh, that would be an issue, yes. No, I'll invite somebody over to my station actually to operate and uh, let them use my station for their own contacts and maybe they'll throw in my call every once in a while too. <laughs> that's the best way. So... Now, you've been uh, operating since uh, 1967. You must have had some memorable contacts in that time. What was your most memorable one? Well, that's a... I'd have to think. You know, I've had so many interesting contacts. I, uh, I've had so many times where I've made a contact and run up the stairs trying to tell everybody how exciting it was to talk to somebody. Um, and there's been so many of them. I remember waking my wife many times at 2 o'clock in the morning saying I just contacted somebody because I was so excited. So uh, to pick out one is more memorable, more memorable than the other, I don't know. Uh, the hobby, you know, everything is so uh, unpredictable. Everything that we have is a variable. Uh, propagation is something that really we we have a kind of a clue about, but there, no one really knows exactly. And that's such a variable. That's some you know somebody says, well, why don't you just talk to somebody on Skype? You can talk to them around the world. Well, you've taken out all the variability and unpredictability of ham radio. And to me, that's where uh, the excitement of uh, you know, I could I just recently I, I had a contact uh, with the Spratly Islands from my QTH in Illinois, and th uh, to be honest with you, it was uh, the the opening was probably less than 30 seconds long because it was on 160 meters and it was CW, and it, it happened to coincide with uh, the the change from full darkness to daylight. We call that the gray line. And you had to sit there and listen to them the entire time, and they just peaked right out of the blue. And for that 30 seconds, I was so fortunate that they heard my call, and they called me right away. We made the contact, and they faded back down into the noise. And I had been sitting there for five days in a row at that same time trying to work that station. And that was, my, I guess, my most recent thrill was to say that I did something like that. So, But, you know, I tell you, there's a, there's a thrill uh, in so many ways, uh, I completed my uh, two-meter worked all state. Uh, worked, uh, yeah, worked all states, uh, uh, and uh, two meters, of course, is associated mostly with short-distance contacts. And uh, I have had the the privilege. I started working on uh, worked all states on uh, two meters in about in the 1970s, and so to complete 50 states after all of this time was a huge. 
uh, uh, you know, just very exciting thing. My last date was Alaska, and we ended up working off the moon, bouncing a signal off the moon uh, for our last contact. But prior contacts had been bouncing signals off a meteor scatter or uh, uh, sporadic E or tropospheric openings, you know, in temperature inversions. Um, so we've used, it's just been a very exciting to complete something like that after many, many years of trying. So, you know, to pick out one, you know, I've had so many, it's just a real thrill. I, that's why I think, you know, the longer you're a ham radio operator, the more fun, and the more times you're going to look back and say, wow, that was exciting. Craig Thompson, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Good luck. Craig Thompson, K9CT. I'm on Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima Alpha Bravo.